This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by the artist Amanda Bianco, who uses the magic of nature in her work. Amanda Bianco incorporates actual dye from flowers and the pattern of real tree rings in her products. And she generously sent me some of her artwork and it is just so, so lovely and full of natural magic. You can invite these whimsical pieces into your sacred spaces by visiting www.amandabianco.com. That's Amanda, B as in bewitching, I, E, N as in nature, K, O, dot com. And use special offer code WITCH for 15% off your purchase. Thanks, Amanda. Today's episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Witch Baby Soap. Do you like to dwell in the shadows but stay squeaky clean? Then Witch Baby Soap is the soap for you. They make fabulous occult-themed body products like coffin-shaped bath balms, tarot card soap, and crystal-embedded body butters. Their recipes are made with magical intentions, and they're free of all of those nasty things like sulfates and parabens. And now you can get 15% off orders using offer code WITCHWAVE. That's WITCHWAVE, one word, on witchbabysoap.com. So get ready to wind down, lather up, and get some Witch Baby Soap products using offer code WITCHWAVE now. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. And welcome to the Witch Wave. Tomorrow night is the full wolf moon, which always sounds to me like one of the gothest moons of the year. It's alleged that this moon gets its name because wolves are said to be heard howling in the heart of winter, whether due to hunger or territoriality. I love this moon because it reminds us to tap into our inner wildness. But for me, the full wolf moon also conjures images of werewolves and desolate landscapes and haunted houses. I've been listening obsessively to one of my favorite songs by the band TV on the Radio to get myself in the mood for this moon. It's called Wolf Like Me, and it begins with these lyrics. 
Say, say, my playmate, won't you lay hands on me? Mirror my malady, transfer my tragedy. Got a curse I cannot lift, shines when the sunset shifts. When the moon is round and full, gotta bust that box, gotta gut that fish. The song then goes on to be this driving ode to animalistic, wolfish lust and frenzy and dark romance. And I confess, it totally tickles my inner gothling. I've also been thinking a lot about goth culture, where it comes from, why it persists, and what it can teach us about embracing darkness and loss and death in general. But certainly, during this time of collective mourning and racial reckoning that we're going through right now here in America. We talk a lot on this show about how examining and integrating our shadow can help us become more healed and more whole. Doing that work makes us more potent witches and more compassionate people overall. And goth is one of those lenses through which we can look more closely at darkness, to learn from it, to welcome it, to celebrate it. So I think this gothy, full wolf moon is the perfect backdrop for today's conversation with Leela Taylor, author of one of the best books I have read in years called Darkly, Black History and America's Gothic Soul. Our conversation is lovely, dark, and deep, as the Robert Frost poem goes, and I can't wait for you to hear it. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Hannah writes... I would like to say just how much I appreciate the insight and engagement of your podcast. I have been struggling with a certain question for a while, and I'm surprised it took me so long to think of asking you. I am a follower of Lilith. Even though I started my witchcraft practice certain that I would remain secular due to the religious traumas of my Catholic upbringing— I was soon drawn to the stories of Lilith and became fascinated by her rebellion and her resolve to be in the wilderness with her independence rather than be in the garden with her subservience. Shortly after I had reached out to a devotee online with questions, Lilith came to me in a vision. She appeared before me in a red cloak, and I heard her voice you have asked for me, and here I am. I spent the following month in discernment and contemplation, and afterwards conducted a ritual of devotion to her as my patron. But in the years since, I have read conflicting ideas about whether Lilith is part of the closed culture of Judaism. 
To my knowledge, I have no Jewish ancestry, though admittedly the documented genealogy on my mother's side only goes back as far as the late 1800s. This has become a great struggle in my mind and my devotional practice. Your perspective as a person of Jewish heritage is very important to me, but equally important are your powers of nuance and reasoning. I am not asking to be coddled, but I have also realized that I cannot continue wholeheartedly in my devotion while this question hangs in my mind. Thank you, and may the new year bring blessings to you and your loved ones. Hi, Hannah. Well, the theme of today's episode is darkness, and I love talking about the dark goddess Lilith. But before I do, I think what you're asking about is a question that comes up a lot on this show, and that's, is it okay to have a relationship with a deity from a culture that is not yours? And I've had guests on this show from all different backgrounds who say yes, and I've had some guests of all different backgrounds who have said no. And so I'm afraid you're just not going to get a hard, fast rule around this. I sincerely wish there was a simple answer, but spirituality is not a simple topic. Now, as we know, and as you are getting at, cultural appropriation is absolutely a huge problem in the mystical community, especially when it comes to white people who borrow from African diaspora traditions or indigenous American traditions, and worst of all, who do so without awareness or sensitivity or consideration of the painful histories and dynamics that exist there. So I think when approaching a deity from a culture that isn't yours, doing a lot of research and giving credit to the communities of origin is absolutely crucial. I also think that profiting off of these communities and not paying them or otherwise consensually collaborating with them is not okay, just as a rule of thumb. And I think you should also consider that no matter how much due diligence you do, you might still upset or hurt someone in those communities because no group is a monolith and has a single spokesperson for everyone in that group, right? So just because a bunch of people from a certain group might green light something, that doesn't mean you might not encounter someone else who is of that group who isn't that pleased with what you're doing. And that's just something to keep in mind. And so there's not a permission slip or a certificate that you can get from these different groups um, other than potentially converting outright to be a religious member of some of them. And even then you might convert and then there will be people who might say, oh, but you're not really an XYZ because your ancestors aren't from this group, right? So it's just something to keep in mind that there may always be naysayers, but I think there are ways that you can be as respectful as possible when approaching material that is outside your own lineage. Okay, so all of that said, I personally, and I'm speaking just for myself, and I reserve the right to evolve this thinking, 
But I personally currently do not think that we must only stick to our own culture or cultures of origin when it comes to our spirituality. Music, food, fashion, art, and yes, spirituality cross-pollinates and travels and intermingles. And I think that's something that at its best is so beautiful and inspirational. On the other hand, whitewashing something and calling it your own when it's not is not okay. So giving credit and respect and yes, funding to the culture of origin when appropriate is crucial. And also just acknowledging and knowing that there are deep histories and complicated contexts that you don't have access to is an important thing to examine as well. You just don't have that lived experience. You don't have that, you know, cultural nuance that comes with someone who has been brought up in a certain community, right? So I'm sure I don't have to say this to you, but just so we're clear, working with Lilith doesn't make you Jewish and feeling a kinship with her doesn't give you a full understanding of what it means to be a Jew. But in sum, yes, I'm Jewish, I'm a Jewish, and you are not Jewish, and you love Lilith. And frankly, I think that's really lovely. I probably wouldn't go around calling yourself a Jewish priestess of Lilith anytime soon, and I don't think you're planning on doing that, but I absolutely believe that this goddess has messages and inspiration for you, and that you owe it to yourself to learn more about her. I'll also add that in this case, Lilith is kind of an exceptional character because she's very much part of Jewish folklore, but she's not really in the Torah or a part of Jewish worship in the traditional sense. In fact, ancient Jews were terrified of her and believed she would kill their newborn children. And so they used lots of amulets and incantation bowls to protect their homes from her. Lilith was no joke. She was a demoness, according to their thinking. That story of Lilith being Adam's first wife didn't get popularized until the 8th century CE thanks to another book whose title translates to The Alphabet of Ben-Sirah. And she's probably a permutation of much older Mesopotamian storm goddesses called the Lilitu, and quick plug, I do write about Lilith in my book, Waking the Witch, so you might want to check that out too. Anyhow, my point is there's no real crisp history of Jews worshipping Lilith as part of our religion. She's much more of a mythical being, like a bogeywoman, and it's only been within the last 50 or so years that feminists reframed her as this awesome, witchy, rebellious inspiration. And I still think that that interpretation of her has validity and majesty and truth. Deities morph and their magic and meanings mutate all the time. All of this to say, though, that to my mind, 
working with Lilith is different than if you wanted to form a relationship with a deity that is still an active part of an active religion. So I think you get a little more leeway in this case. Anyway, that's just my two cents. I'm sure there might be some Jewitches out there or just straight up Jewish people who might feel differently than me. So you should know that. But I don't feel offended by this. And I think learning more about her and deepening your relationship with her respectfully and mindfully sounds like a beautiful idea. So thank you so much for your considerate question, and tell my girl Lilith I say hey. Now, on to my guest. Leela Taylor is the author of Darkly, Black History and America's Gothic Soul, and I am head over heels in love with this book. It opened my mind and my heart and made so many connections for me. And it's so smart and beautifully written and deeply insightful. And you will hear me gushing even more about it in my conversation with Leela in a moment. Leela is a writer and designer whose work overall is focused on the gothic in black culture, horror, and the aesthetics of melancholy. She's been published in the Journal of Horror Studies, the New Urban Gothic, Dispatches from the Institute of Incoherent Geography, and the Repeater Book of the Occult. She has given talks for the International Gothic Association in Mexico and the UK, and here in New York at Morbid Anatomy. Leela received a master's in fine arts from Yale University and an MA in liberal studies at the New School for Social Research. If all that wasn't dreamy enough, she also happens to be creative director for the Brooklyn Public Library. Leela joined me from her home in Brooklyn via Zoom. Leela Taylor, welcome to the Witch Wave. Thank you for having me. I'm very, I'm very excited. I'm very honored to be here. I am so thrilled to have you here. As I've told you before, I am just such a fangirl of yours. So this is a true treat. And your book, Darkly, Black History and America's Gothic Soul, I'm not exaggerating when I say like it is one of my favorite books that I've read in the last however long it's been out. Is it two years-ish now? You're yeah. Yeah. And I've bought it for people. Like I just love this book so, Ooh. so much. So let's talk about just by way of introduction, how it seems like you were literally born to write this book. <laughs> the intersections of all of your biographical details just make you the person to write about it. Can you share a little bit about why you think that may or may not be true yourself? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because my, yeah, my name is Leela, which means dark as night or beautiful as the night or something like that in Arabic. So I feel like it was just sort of, I was made to be talking about dark and spooky things. You know, we moved around a lot when I was a kid, but some reformative years were in Detroit, which is a majority black city. 
And, you know, I went to kind of a hippie Quaker school. My mom's an anthropologist and my dad's an architect. My friends, the people I was surrounded by were super, super, super diverse. And then my sophomore year in high school, we moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. And that was just like a complete 180, you know, all of a sudden there was this really big divide between white kids and the black kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't see any like weird black kids the way I did in Detroit. You know, I was suddenly kind of the only one in the room, you know, and that was kind of my first realization that my blackness was somehow different from other people's blackness. In what way? In Detroit, there was like, you know, I'd be in a classroom with majority of black kids and you'd have your nerdy black kids and your jock black kids and your, you know, black kids in the sci-fi. And then you had your like gothy black kids or in your arty farty black kids. So there was this spectrum of personality, mm-hmm. right? And when I went into a much more kind of segregated space, it was like everybody was listening to the same music. Everyone was kind of dressed in the same way. And it could have been, you know, just the nature of that particular school or whatever. But when I was like hanging out in the art room or going to arty farty movies, you know, downtown is with all the white kids. Mm -hmm. So that was when I really started feeling like, as I say, the only raisin in the oatmeal, like (laughs) I'm the only black face in here. And as I started getting older and going to shows and going to concerts and stuff and even much much older like you know maybe 10 years ago when I started going to you know lectures and talks about all sorts of spooky macabre things or you know art shows or what have you and I'd look around and I'd be like I'm the only black person here or like Mm -hmm. there'd be one other person you know Mm -hmm. and you know I thought well why is that you know And I started off wanting to look at sort of black folks in the goth scene, you know, basically kind of narrow it down to my own experience and the thing that I loved. And what was it like being kind of twice marginalized? You know, it's like this double otherness. Yeah, exactly. But what I found was, you know, like black goth, the same as white goth people, you know what I mean? It's like, we all like the same stuff and the same kind of music and dress the same. But the difference is that you're a black person in America. So your experience in the world is different in a way that non-black people don't experience, whether you're goth or not, you know? Absolutely. Do you remember what got you into goth music? Like what was the gateway drug for you if you will (laughs) Detroit had a really great radio station like alternative radio station and my best friend was a little more into music than I was like she was like a smidge more of ahead of the curve you know we'd go to record stores together and we would feel like a million years old I'm talking about like radio stations and record stores but (laughs) I love it. So maybe around like 13 years old, I was super into like Anne Rice and vampires and the macabre and the occult. And then at some point I heard Susie and the Banshees mm-hmm. and it kind of led to The Cure and Bauhaus. And I was like, this is it. This music is it. So the music just kind of fit 
my personality, you know? I mean, because I was so young, it's not like I was going to clubs or anything. Sure. So the culture, like goth culture, I wasn't so much a part of at that young age. It was really, really about the music. Yeah. And me trying to dress like Susie Sue as best as I could. <laughs> yes. <you know? laughs> oh, my God. I want to see pictures. That's so rad. I just want to make sure that those who are listening have the basic definitions down, just so we all know what we're talking about here. I mean, I do think, what's that cliche? Like, when you look at porn, it's hard to define, but you know it when you see it. No, like, it's great. It, exactly. And it's kind of like that with goth a little bit. But yeah. how do you define goth? How do you describe yeah. it to people? Well, and this kind of brings the book into a little bit, because I talk about the gothic more in the book. So there's goth and gothic, which are two totally different things. So goth is a music genre that started out of England in the late 70s with Joy Division. And then Susie and the Banshees and Bajos and The Cure came along as a kind of foundational bands. And through that, the subculture, the people who love the music grew out around that. And because of like Susie Sue and, and Robert Smith, is post-punk really. So there's some punk influence there. So this style, this fashion, you know, this look kind of got associated with goth music and it became sort of this whole bigger thing. And the thing is, it changes a lot. Like mm -hmm. what goth is to me, like as a 48 year old is probably not the same as it is for, you know, 15 year old now, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. like it's a very malleable genre and it kind of changes and morphs depending on the time, you know, sure. But it's goth. Yes. And there are signifiers that seem to kind of be a through line through it all though. Wouldn't you agree? Oh yeah. Yeah. Black. Yep. Wearing all black. Yep. It's like the basic <laughs> foundational thing. For sure. You know, there's a aesthetic that kind of borrows from Victorian morning drag, fetish gear, punk stuff. It's moved into sort of more cyber stuff over the years. It kind of changes to kind of vampire of vamp stuff. The intricacies of the look kind of changes but it's always I'd say a little bit over the top yep always all black I would say drama 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 is the key line yes like it's not one ring on your finger it's like a ring on every finger you know <laughs> I'm gonna quote you to you you have this great line in the book you say that when you describe gothness you say to people picture a peacock now imagine a peacock that's all black. And I love yeah. that so much because it speaks to, there's a bit of like a flamboyance and kind of a, a campness, wouldn't you agree? Oh, totally. The reason why I picked the peacock too is that it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's a big, huge tail. It's all drama. It's all show. It's sort of gorgeous and excessive, mm -hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think there's this misconception that goth is all about doom and gloom when really it's about like the performance <laughs> of doom and gloom. Yes, yes. And it's about romanticizing, you know, melancholy and romanticizing these things. So there is this definite fun 
and a little bit of frivolity and a little bit of whimsy. I love the word whimsy when I describe goth Mm because people don't think of it that way, but it's true. If you're walking around with a black velvet top hat and a parasol in the middle of somebody, (laughs) that's, you know, that's, that's not a very like serious stuffy person, you know? Exactly. It's romanticism, really. Yeah. And so you were going to tell us, how's that related to kind of gothic, like the gothic, I don't know, art movement or gothic movements Mm -hmm. in history? So while goth is a music genre and a subculture and a fashion, gothic is really a descriptor that has its origins when the Visigoths sacked Rome in the 5th century, right? Mm -hmm. During the Age of Enlightenment, the term gothic kind of came back to be associated with things that were kind of wild and unsophisticated and irrational since the Goths trashed Rome and Rome was all about classical antiquity and stuff and logic and reason. So that term gothic kind of got associated things which were kind of unsophisticated and kind of (laughs) trashy. And then kind of around like the Middle Ages up until 18th century or so, gothic architecture or the term gothic was applied to a kind of architecture that was tons of spiky stuff, sharp, incredibly elaborate, spiky stuff everywhere, spiky, pointy things. Yes, yes, I love it. I love it. Over the top detail for everything, right? Mm-hmm. Gothic was also used to describe a kind of post Reformation, you know, British political party and things like that. There's a type style called Gothic mm-hmm. that doesn't look Gothic at all. Mm-hmm. But like the way that kind of we think of Gothic. Well, it started in 1764 with the author Horace Walpole, who wrote The Castle of Otranto. Mm. And that's considered the first Gothic novel. And that has, you know, it takes place in the Middle Ages. There's a big sort of medieval revivalism about Gothic. You know, it's a creepy, decrepit castle. There are ghosts. It's all about superstition. And then Frankenstein came along and you can go up the scale. But when we think of gothic stuff, that's kind of what we're thinking of, you know? Yes. So now it's become kind of this catch-all signifier for anything that's kind of dark or creepy or macabre or the sublime. And it's also romanticism. It's kind of dark romanticism. So Wuthering Heights Mm -hmm. is considered gothic. But like Alexander McQueen's clothes are to be considered gothic, you know? Absolutely. For yeah. me, I would consider myself when I was in high school, I was I came of age in the 90s. I was a teenager and I would consider myself goth adjacent. Like I loved The Cure. I loved Susie Sue. At the time, like Marilyn Manson was, you mm-hmm. know, all the rage. And then... Listeners are sick of hearing me talk about like PJ Harvey and Bjork and Tori, which mm. not, are not goth, but I would almost yeah. consider them like goth adjacent adjacent in terms of that dark romanticism and stuff. Yeah. Oh, PJ Harvey. Yeah. A little bit, maybe. That's really interesting. Yeah. But it's interesting talking to you about it and hearing the words that come up for you because I was expecting you to talk about like decay and death and, mm. and and that's a big piece of it I think for some folks as well oh yeah but I love all the romanticism and the beauty and and those yeah. words that you're using too because that's absolutely it that's absolutely it it's not depressing yeah but also like the ruin is a huge part of it 
and decay and things like that. But it's also, it's finding the beauty in that ruin, you know, and kind of loving that aesthetic and the memento moriness yes. of decay, you know, of the cemetery. Mm-hmm. All of that is definitely part of it. And a lot of it is that sort of reminder we are going to die someday. Yes. You know? Yes. So I want to get back to this notion of like that double otherness you were contending with. Because, you know, when you were talking about the origin of goth music, like it's a lot of white people and it's a lot of people who, you know, the stereotype of the goth is someone with like ultra pale skin. And you mm-hmm. write in the book really sensitively about how like you had to kind of reconcile that and feel like you as a black person absolutely had validity and were welcome or at least, you know, felt like you had a right to be part of this subculture. And I I was trying to parse. It sounds like a lot of your black peers were making you feel othered. Did you feel othered mm-hmm. by white folks in the goth community or was it more just that internalized feeling of like being the raisin in the oatmeal it was more my own folks it Mm -hmm. was more black folks you know I got called oreo a lot Mm -hmm. like black Mm -hmm. on the outside white on the inside you know I got accused of like trying to be white or like trying to act white or whatever and it was so hurtful and so infuriating you know Mm -hmm. because it wasn't true I wasn't trying to be white, you know, Mm -hmm. and the idea that, you know, people were saying or thinking that there was this kind of quantitative scale of how black you were based on the clothes you wore or the music you liked or the things that you did, that how that somehow made you more black than someone who, you know, likes the pest mode or whatever. Sure. So the idea that there was this restriction or this limitation of what the expression of what a black person is was bullshit to me forever pardon my you know we we curse like pirates on the witch yes bring it on (laughs) yeah so it angered me a lot because it was one of those things where it's like one you don't know me and two why are you trying to define what a black person is mm-hmm. that's what the society has done for 400 years yep. is try to say black people are this black people are that why do that to ourselves yeah what i love about this book there's so much but you so masterfully really make the case that gothness And blackness, especially the black American experience, and I'm saying that in quotes because I know there's no one monolithic experience, but but that they actually have so much in common. Mm -hmm. You write, both goth and blackness are performative identities with foundations in transgression, a familiarity with death and aestheticized mourning, and a keen awareness of the darker side of human nature. And... While I think goths do contend with those broader themes of like death and decay and suffering and hauntedness, which we could argue is universal, Black American history, I don't have to tell you, has tragically interfaced with 
those horrors in these like really specific, non-hypothetical ways. And we're going to get into some of that. But I was wondering if unpacking gothness has made you feel like you have like more ownership over or further affirmation of your goth identity as a black person. Like, yeah. Yeah. One of the bigger differences in all of this is, like you said, a lot of the real horror and mourning and sorrow and pain and anger and frustration, all of the sort of negative emotions that the Gothic kind of deals with is so much a part of the historical lived experience of, of Black people in America. Mm-hmm. You know, it's generational. It's a sort of generational trauma. It's built into it, you know. And again, goth music, you know, came from post-punk, which came from punk, which came from rock and the blues, which came from black music. Yeah. All of this came from black music, you know. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is this, and I'm going to say gothic more than goth, because I think goth kind of limits it at least in my head, it limits it to the music and the clothes when the gothic is really a much, much, much bigger, broader aesthetic that can be applied to all sorts of things. So I do think that the experience of living with this kind of systemic and consistent melancholy And I don't mean that black people are walking around in tears all the time, Mm -hmm. but I mean that there is this significant loss, this lack of all of those people who were lost in the transatlantic slave trade, the loss of languages, the loss of histories, the loss of traditions, the separation of families, and then sort of being told or being split up and being codified in this country, so much of identity and so much of who we were has been policed, has been dictated, you know, has tried to be made into something that it's not. So all that stuff, all of the frustration in that and all of that gaslighting, it's like 400 years of freaking being gaslit in this country. Yeah, All of that has to go somewhere. And I think it goes into our I think it goes into music and literature and clothes and film. And I think also the bigger part of it is that Black people, because of this history and because of our lived experience up to this day, we don't have the option of looking at the world as a perfect, beautiful, shiny, happy place. Mm-hmm. We don't have the luxury of looking at America as that shining city on the hill. Sure. Because we've seen behind the curtain, you know, we live behind the curtain. So part of goth and the gothic is kind of looking into the abyss, you know, (laughs) in the abyss looking back at you. Yes. And that is part of the black, like when all of this shit went down on the sixth, didn't surprise black people at all. No one was surprised. Exactly. Yep. The Capitol riots you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. Again, it's part of the sort of double consciousness thing that the experience that non-Black people have in this country is different from the experience that Black people have in this country. And I should also put a little asterisk on there saying, say most marginalized people, 
Native Americans, queer people, Latino people, mm-hmm. people from the Middle East, and so any of these marginalized groups that have been sort of stereotyped and limited and restricted, they all have a gothicness to them too. Yes. That's all there. It may not be any movies about it yet, but there will be. You know what I mean? Absolutely. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Look, it's hard enough grappling with our own emotions under ordinary circumstances, but even more so when the world is going through massive collective challenges. I am so grateful for my therapist, and even though I've done sessions in person for years, I've been pretty amazed at how effective online therapy has been for me right now. And so I can heartily recommend BetterHelp, an online counseling service which can provide you with your own licensed professional therapist to talk to via video or phone sessions. So if you have anxiety issues like I do, or are dealing with depression, stress, trauma, grief, or even just day-to-day struggles with your relationships or your family, or just feeling like you're not meeting your personal goals right now, which, let's be honest, has been very difficult for most of us these days, I really encourage you to reach out to the folks at BetterHelp. They will connect you with a counselor that you can start chatting with in under 24 hours. Now, a few things I really appreciate about BetterHelp is that it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, plus they offer financial aid to those who qualify, and they make it super easy to change counselors so you can find one that you really click with. Best of all, Witch Wave listeners, that's you, get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com slash witchwave. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash witchwave. I believe that all human beings can benefit from therapy. I certainly have myself, and I'm so glad that it's becoming more accepted and more accessible to do so. So please pop over to betterhelp.com witchwave and find a great counselor to talk to. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient care, and you, my friend, deserve that. Would you like even more Witchwave? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witch Wave Plus episodes, ad-free Witch Wave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards also include magical merch and giveaways, early heads up about my workshops before they sell out, and all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly rituals and video chats, and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witches. So head on over to patreon.com witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Leela Taylor. So Leela, one of the things I love in this book is the way that you connect 
the goth adjacent genre of horror to blackness. And of course, we've seen a lot more of that being done recently through films like Jordan Peele's Get Out and Us and the HBO series Lovecraft Country. But I was especially moved by your analysis of American ghost stories from Edgar Allan Poe's tales to Toni Morrison's Beloved. And to actually get to a point you were just making before the break, you write, America is built over the bones of brown people who were here first and built by black people who were brought here against their will. And the fear of retaliation is real. So. First, actually, I want to ask you about, you know, you you talk about the telltale heart as kind Mm -hmm. of this wonderful, very American story and Mm -hmm. one that you think speaks to a lot of our history, the hauntedness of America. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, Poe is really into hiding things in walls and under floorboards and things like that. And the idea of the skeleton in the closet, essentially, Sin, the evil, the murder that you committed, hiding that body in a wall or under a floorboard and things like that, where you live, you know, like that ghost, you put that ghost there Mm -hmm. and it's with you all the time. And you're kind of doing your best to pretend it's not there and forget about it. But you put it there, you put it there and it's going to knock on your door and your walls, you know, like or not. So I think the idea of this fear of your sins coming back at you, of your chickens coming home to roost is still here. It's still here. There's still a fear that if black folks get into power, we're going to immediately start, you know, making slaves out of all white people out of, you know, to retaliate something or retaliation or something like that Mm -hmm. because it's guilt. All of it is this this deep, deep repressed guilt because they knew they were doing wrong and they still know they're doing wrong and they know that they've gotten away with murder and that's what it is. And they know there's always going to be, you know, looking over your shoulder, waiting for that, you know, knock in the wall because they're guilty. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. It, It made me think about how in Stephen King novels, like, there's that trope of like the Indian burial ground too. Just like like the many, many sins and murderous horrors that this country has been founded on and that we continue, I'll say we as white people, the white we has continued to keep buried in the walls and keep oppressed and pushed down in literal and figurative ways. Yeah. I was curious how you yourself literally or figuratively think about these ghosts because you have this one moment in the book where you talk about seeing a phantom dog as a child. And so I got curious, Leela. I'm like, how how much do you think ghosts and the ghosts of our dead are still with us? Or do you yeah. think that horror is just a way that we're reconciling with this from like a psychological, mythopoetic standpoint? I think it's both. Mm. I want to believe, you know. I mean, I think there is this metaphor of the ghost as a remnant of the past that's here in the present, right? And I do think that 
spaces absorb energy. I do believe that places, that things, particularly houses, I'm fascinated by haunted houses. Mm. I do think that material can maybe take in some of the things around them. And if there's something that's particularly violent or horrifying or something, maybe that imprint or whatever is a little bit stronger or something. But then there's also this idea. First of all, I feel like there's these different definitions or ideas of a ghost. There's the trace of something left behind. But then also, you know, I have this idea of the ghost as being temporal, that it's sort of you're kind of the past and the present have somehow overlapped mm. or happening at the same time. You know, like mm-hmm. my present is the ghost present where it just happened to be there at the same time when it normally wouldn't. Or the thing, the one that makes me the saddest <laughs> is the idea of, you know, the spirit or the essence of someone getting stuck here, being mm-hmm. stuck, you know, in this plane or being stuck in this existence because of the horrible way they left or leaving something unresolved or unfinished. So they kind of can't move on, you know, And I think the sort of American experiment of all this applies to all of those things. You know, we are very much living in the past and the present. We're very much seeing the remnants of slavery to this day in all of its many forms, like Mm -hmm. the for-profit prison industrial complex. It's basically slavery. Absolutely. But again, there's a lot of this psychic and spiritual unfinished business you know it's funny because people ask me if I believe in ghosts and I almost I think it depends on what your definition of a ghost is Mm. I don't think there's one particular definition of what a ghost is I mean the way I guess I would think of it is that do these traces do these temporal moments leave behind something material is it possible that these essence or this energy can affect physics, can affect our physical space, you know, in a way that we can actually sense either taste or smell or hear or feel or whatever, you know, how strong does that trace or that spirit or that whatever have to be Mm. to be visible or have sound or have smell or whatever. Mm -hmm. That was my very long answer. I think my short answer is, yeah, I do believe in ghosts of some kind. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. A lot of my witchy friends, they keep talking about how when Trump leaves the White House, they just want to like, you know, burn all the herbs and just do all the rituals and kind of like, you know, they're yeah. being cheeky and also not yeah. cheeky. Yeah. And it got me thinking about I absolutely believe that reparations should be paid to black Americans. And, and of course, like I think money and support and resources in the material sense absolutely should be reallocated in that way. But I'm also like, I wonder what the the ceremonies are and the spiritual healing that we need to do as a nation too. I'm just, I don't have an answer, but I just wonder what that might look like too. Yeah. I think whatever that is. And I think 
the museum that opened up the lynching museum is kind of touching on that or trying or trying to touch on that. I think whatever that is, is going to be really, really important because the monetary value, the economic, the capital value of that loss, God knows what that is. I do not know what that is because it's invaluable. You know, it's repaid in access to healthcare. It's repaid in, you know, equitable education experience. It's in, in housing opportunities. It's, it can be repaid in that way and investing into black communities, but the spiritual damage, Mm -hmm. I'm interested in that too. I'm curious as to what, what that really looks like. Cause there's memorials and there's tributes kind of all over the place to slavery and to the civil rights movement and things like that. You know, there's the African-American museum in DC that opened up not that long ago. Yeah. I feel like there needs to be something much bigger and I don't know what that is either. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's certainly worth considering and dreaming about. We have lots of magical people who listen to this show. So just putting that out in the ether to whomever's yep. listening, I want to pivot ever so slightly. You know, this is the witch wave. And so mm-hmm. I need to ask you about witches mm-hmm. because there are so many more witch stories on screen and in books than ever before. And still so often those witches are depicted as white or if they're black, they're shown as like a very offensive kind of caricature of like the voodoo priestess, which is pretty clumsy and very racist. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on depictions of black witches in fiction, like things you'd like to see mm-hmm. more of, less of, anything that you think is being done well. I was thinking about this and like I love American Horror Story. I do. And I love the Coven series, but the way that they talk about voodoo just makes my skin crawl. Mm-hmm. They always refer to it as being something kind of low or trashy or, or like, you know, it's always kind of poo-pooed as not being as good as like the white people, mm-hmm. white witches, whatever. But there's a web series called Juju. That's about four black women in New York City who discover that they're witches. And I really want this to get picked up somewhere. I would love to see more contemporary depictions of witches and hoodoo and voodoo and the way people actually really live with it, especially voodoo or hoodoo, because I personally actually don't know that much about it. Mm. Or my knowledge is, is pretty surface compared to people who actually practice it, you know. So I would love to see something more about people like right right here and now, not something in the past, you know, and not something but how people practice and incorporate it into their everyday lives, you know, in their studios in Brooklyn, you know. Yes, absolutely. And and it's and it's happening. I mean, my coven is really diverse and we have several black witches who are incorporating all their like African diaspora traditions <laughs> into, you know, the more, I guess you would call it Wicca influenced, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of style of witchcraft and how it's being blended together is so yeah. moving and beautiful. Yeah. I'd love to see that on screen too. Yeah. And then just the one thing I was thinking about this and I was thinking about the first time I saw black witch or depiction of that and it was the whiz the movie the whiz i was just like oh my god lena horn 
as the as Glenda mm-hmm. and this one as the, the witch of the north. I forget the directions the witches are. Mm-hmm. Even like Eveline. Those are three black witches. Yes. And they were all fantastic. They're all actually fan and the great music. And they were all different from each other. And so I think my first sort of thinking of what a black witch was, was probably Lena Horne as Glenda <laughs> in The Wiz. I mean, it doesn't get much better than her, though, does it? That's <laughs> that's gorgeous. I just watched that recently, like maybe within the past year and a half. And oh, that so gown, good. she's, oh, yeah, yeah. Makes me cry. That in song every time makes me cry. So beautiful. <laughs> On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. I absolutely adore Zoo's Incense. Zoo's Incense is a handmade, hand-rolled, all-natural product. All of their ingredients are organic or wild-crafted, which means they're made with whole plants, seeds, roots, woods, tree resins, and tinctures. Zoo's has nine blends currently available, and they are so magical. And I am so thrilled that I have collaborated with them to create the Witch Wave Blend, which is inspired by Artemis. It contains sandalwood, orris root, myrrh, black storax, mugwort, ambret seed tincture, and organic ylang-ylang essential oil. And you can find that special exclusive Witch Wave Blend over on the Witch Wave website in our shop by going to witchwavepodcast.com shop. So do check out the Witch Wave Incense Blend from Zoos. In addition to all of that, Zoos is now offering incense making kits for your own incense crafting experiments at home. You can look for exclusive new incense crafting supplies on the Zoos website alongside their other hand cast concrete burners, charcoal, raw aromatics like frankincense and myrrh, and other incense supplies. You can find all of that over on the Zoos website, which is zoosincense.com that's z-o-u-z incense.com and you can get free shipping on orders over $22 by using code witchwave so just to repeat all this juicy information you can find the witchwave exclusive incense blend over on the witchwave website at witchwavepodcast.com slash shop and you can also get all of those other wonderful incense goodies at zoosincense.com and get free shipping on orders over $22 by using promo code WITCHWAVE. That's zoosincense.com, promo code WITCHWAVE. Thank you, Zoos. Welcome back to the WITCHWAVE. Today I'm speaking with Leela Taylor. So Leela, we were just speaking about witches and spell casting. And I really, really adored how you wrote about the song, I Put a Spell on You, in Darkly, and about the musician Screamin' Jay Hawkins in general. And I found it really eye-opening when I was reading this. And I'm just going to confess, like, I have loved him since I was a teenager. My ringtone to this day is his Mm. version of that song. I've had that same ringtone for, like, I think maybe 15 years. And I've always enjoyed him as this very campy—I know I'm being kind of, like, anachronistic here, but 
Elvira kind of character. Like he's a very mm-hmm. cartoonish pop occult performer. And I just think he has a great voice and on and on and on. So I yeah. I love him, right? Yeah. But after reading your book, I'm like, oh shit, is my love of him even okay? I mean, I had no idea he had that album, Black Music for White People. I had no idea there was this perception of him as really performing blackness in this very problematic way. And so I I would just love for you to walk us through your thinking around him. Keep loving him. Keep loving him. Because I have come to love him too. And I think because when I first saw him without really knowing anything about him I have no idea how old it was it always kind of made me cringe because it felt to me this kind of minstrelly Mm -hmm. depiction of the quote-unquote like jungle man with the bone through his nose and the kind of ooga booga I got a stick with a skull on it so it felt like all of those movies from like the 40s or whatever that were mocking black people and it felt like it was this caricature of that um for white audiences I mean he knew exactly what he was doing mm-hmm. right like I love the idea like there's this there's a um he used to rise out of a coffin you know on stage and I think it was like a radio person's guy or someone suggested that he do that and he was like I'll do that if you pay me more Yes. He got extra money if you do the rising out of the coffin stick, you know? Yeah. And then I was watching videos of him. And there are moments where, like, he's almost starting to laugh a little bit in performances because he knows that he's playing on this old, old fear of the Black person as the scary... Other. You know, jungle other man or yeah. something like that. And he's playing off of that, and he knows that. The thing that got a little sad for me about learning about him is that it kind of wasn't what he wanted in the beginning. You know, he wanted to be an opera singer. He wanted to be like a crooner Mm. and he kind of got stuck in this gimmick that was really hard for him to get out of, you know? So in that note, that is like, Oh, he wanted to do more than just that. And I think he probably wanted to be seen as more than mm-hmm. just that so he kind of got stuck in this character but he knew what he was doing with that character mm-hmm. and, and that's exactly it the album called black music for white people was exactly what he was doing yeah so knowing what he was doing and knowing how he was playing with that and playing with audiences it makes me just kind of love him even more like he was not a victim of this yeah, he yeah. had agency. He had agency. Did he write his music too? I forget if you touch on that in the book. Yeah. I don't know if he wrote everything. And I didn't realize, though, that he, at least in this one anecdote that you share in the book, he did at least seem to practice some form of hoodoo, we'll call it. Yeah. Can you tell that story? Yeah, there's this great documentary about him. So he was in Jim Jarmusch's movie, Mystery Train, that kind of cameo. He was the hotel clerk. And Jim Jarmusch tells a story about how they were trying to shoot something and it was raining and raining and raining and they were afraid they were going to be delayed or go over budget or something. And he always carried a bag of bones, a a little kind of bag. And he tossed them out and he looked at them and he was like, don't worry about it keep working it's fine it's not gonna rain and it didn't rain 
Yes. And Darmus said that he would say that he practiced hoodoo, but no one really knew for sure. They didn't know if it was an act or it was legit or whatever. But Jim Darmus was like, well, it didn't rain, so maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I love that. I love that. So speaking of music, obviously goth music is like a huge drumbeat throughout this book, if you'll pardon the pun. And I know that you grew up loving the Smiths, and it is so fucking cool that you got to see them live. (laughs) Amazing. And of course, you know, Susie and the Banshees and the Cure and on and on. But later in the book, you parse through older Black American music, particularly the song Strange Fruit. And many listeners will know this song most famously performed by Billie Holiday. And I learned actually on NPR a couple years ago, they did some kind of special where they talked about the origin of that song, how it was written by a Jewish dude Mm -hmm. named, um, am I pronouncing this right? Abel Miracle? Miracle, yeah. Mm -hmm. Communist. Very, very heavy in the Communist Party. He was a radical. Exactly. And his uh, his pen name, we should say, was Lewis Allen, if people are, are confused by mm-hmm. who we're talking about. As, as many know, this is such a gorgeous song, but it's a horrific song about lynching. And you confess that you yourself might have heard this song first through the Susie and the Banshees cover of it and how now that version doesn't sit so well with you. And I know I talk about Tori way too much on this podcast, but that's, you know, that was the cover version I was familiar with. It's like Tori almost like crooning strange fruit on the piano. And now I'm like, oh, that doesn't sit so well with me either. So I was just wondering if delving more into the history of Black America and Black American music, if it's made you look at these white artists that you love more critically, and if there's loss to that at all. Yeah, it has. But also my feeling is if you really, really love something, you criticize it, you nitpick it, and you get into the weeds of it because you love it. Like if if I didn't really like Susie and the Banshees, if I thought they were mediocre, I wouldn't have been thinking about this this much. You know what I mean? Yes. And it's the fact that I love their music so much, which made me look at that song in such a different way than I was when I was a kid, you know? I mean, it's funny you mentioned the Smiths because, you know, fucking Morrissey, like I used to idolize him. And (sighs) like, I mean, I think with, Susan and the Banshee's version, you know, I don't think it was part of some grand ideological thing that she sung in the song. I think it really kind of fits her genre and it fits her style. And I think when I first heard it, I was like, yeah, this sounds like a Susan and the Banshee's cover because, you know, it has a sort of very visceral quality to it and visceral language to it that's very grotesque, but at the same time, musically very lovely and kind of romantic, you know, so it kind of fits her stylistically but the song itself is so thick and heavy with history you know I mean even to this day kind of gives me chills listening to it you know and I'm not saying that only black people should sing strange fruit anyone can sing strange fruit if they want to you know I don't I don't care but you gotta kind of acknowledge where it came from and you kind of have to 
I think if you're not a black person in America or a marginalized person or, or someone who has dealt with that particular kind of violence, state-sanctioned violence, it's hard to pull off because I think it can really feel just like a surface homage or something as opposed to actually feeling it. You know, Susan Banshees is still one of my favorite bands. I listen to their music all the time still. But her version kind of makes me cringe a little bit. I'm like, oh, Susie. Yes, <laughs> I know. <laughs> you write a lot about some Black artists who are now weaving gothicness or goth culture into their music in such inventive and gorgeous ways. I admit I had never heard of M. Lamar, for example, the artist that you wrote about. Can you tell us about their work a little bit? I discovered him through an ad, no, an article in the New York Times. I think I literally had had Googled just like black goth or something. And (laughs) he's a musician and performer, the video work, video installations, and his music is actually a little bit closer to opera. Mm. You know, he sings in that kind of that high falsetto. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. there's a better term for that that I can't remember at the top of my head. Very like Leontine Price, like he kind of channeling a lot of sort of these black opera singers. You know, a little bit Yamanda Gallus. A lot of I was literally about to bring her name. Yeah, up. yeah, yeah. So he kind of borrows from old Negro spirituals. He talks about slavery explicitly in his music and in his videos. And he talks about the trauma and the lingering trauma and that lingering melancholic state left behind from slavery. That's what he talks about in his music. But the music itself, when you've heard it, you probably wouldn't think, oh, that's a goth band because it's so operatic and there's a little bit of death metal in there too you know Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. I think as his musically I think he kind of defies genre a little bit but because of that I think he sort of perfectly embodies black gothness yes yes we had um, this wonderful rapper from South Africa named Yugen Blackrock on the show last season and she has a whole album where she is rapping about like being an astro goth. And mm. I I really love seeing the goth genre be reclaimed in a way by black artists, because to your point, it all circles back to black yeah. music in the first place. So th- I find that really exciting. And you write really beautifully about how I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but how art metabolizes pain and you're taking pain and trauma and sadness and melancholy and making something really beautiful out of it. And earlier you were talking about the kind of frivolity and excess and, you know, the dreaming and the whimsy of goth culture. So do you think that Black gothicness is ultimately healing? Can it be a healing force? Oh, totally. Absolutely. First, it is that kind of taking all of whatever that negative feelings, that pain, you know, betrayal, the bitterness, the frustration, the fear, and taking all of that 
and putting it out and taking it out of yourself and putting it into something of your own creating, whether it's music or fashion or art or dance or whatever it is. And that's why I like the term metabolizing. It's taking something and changing it into something else for the good or for the better or something that's kind of more nutritious, something that you can feed off of and and grow from, you know, it's taking the negative and making it a positive, you know? Yeah. But aside from that, the whimsy and sort of the love of beauty and the appreciation of fantasy and the joy in horror, the fun in horror, like people like like horror movies because they're fun, you know? Yeah. All of that stuff, I think is, I think it's just necessary for survival. I think you have to have those things. I think you have to have pleasure for the sake of pleasure and beauty for the sake of beauty and whimsy for the sake of whimsy. All of that stuff that makes you human (laughs) and real and alive. That's why there's lots of memes and hashtags about Black joy, you know, and especially Black men of like, you know, little videos of Black men just being goofy and silly and stupid, you know? Yeah, I've seen that black boy joy. Yeah, because there's this idea that black men are scary and serious and stoic. And that's dehumanizing to say that you're only this. You need joy (laughs) to survive. (laughs) How would you make it on a day-to-day basis if you didn't have something that made you laugh and smile and relax? And relax, for God's sake, and just do something because you think it's cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. Last question for you. I wish I could talk to you for 19 more hours. (laughs) And honestly, I want to ask you about like every page of your book. It's so good. But I promise this is the last question. Recently, the Washington Post ran a story with the headline, Do Elder Goths Hold the Secret to Aging Successfully? Yes. So what do you make of that? I goth never dies. It's like once you're a goth, you're always a goth. I think part of that is the holding on to sort of that kind of joyous, whimsical, silly, frivolous, romantic part of yourself and just keeping that alive in you. There was a quote in there that said, the focus isn't about youth, which I really liked. It's more about a sensibility and a shared sensibility that doesn't really leave with age like you don't really grow out of your personality I mean I think it's why people look at like Edward Gorey as being like the grandfather of goth or something you know like that I know I know (laughs) it's a subculture around a sentiment that's bigger than whatever the particular fashion is for that day So I think because of that, you know, like I don't go out as much as I used to. I don't really dress up as much as I used to. So we're black pretty much every day. But none of us are going out right now. Don't you worry. Oh my (laughs) god, I take your point. (laughs) As soon as this thing is over, I'm fucking going to every goddamn goth bar and club and band every single night. Yes, my makeup. I'm wearing everything every single day. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, well, it was such a joy to speak with you. Thank you so much for being here. If people want to learn more about you, are you active online? How can people get on the Leela Taylor train? I'm mostly on Twitter. Hello underscore 
Leela or hello dash Leela or something. One of those two. I forget. <laughs> I should know. I never really actually pay attention to my own Twitter handle, but I would say that's the probably the place where I'm more most active online. Awesome. And of course, they all must read your book, Darkly Black History and America's Gothic Soul. Leela, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for being on The Witch Wave. Thank you for having me. This is really great. This is really lovely. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Leela Taylor for bearing her gothic soul and brilliant mind. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Go ahead and drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs, thank you Rachel, and myself. Our sound engineer was Josh Wilcox. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witch Wave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more Witch Wave or you just would like to support the show, please join us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave. 